Welcome to our series Crossroads and Therapy Notes on Access in collaboration with Tangent Mental Health Initiative. Our speakers explore what it would mean to make mental health care services that are currently available accessible. The first episode is a conversation between Ahana Ankita Dipika, a group of therapists who run Tangent Mental Health Initiative and Anugraha and Aishanya, both health and mental health researchers from Belong. Tangent Mental Health Initiative works at the intersection of mental health and transformation justice, offering mental health services in different regional languages, both online and in person in Chennai and Kolkata. Belong is a social venture that aims to bring better services to marginalized communities through a research and innovation-based approach that brings together innovators, researchers, allies and people in need of services to achieve its goal of building a more diverse and inclusive society. Hi everyone, I'm Ahana and I'm super excited to be here today with my colleagues at Tangent Mental Health Initiative and Belong. We're kickstarting our conversation on exploring accessibility and mental health services in India to try to see how we understand it from our diverse context of work and to also see what possibilities lie ahead of us in this conversation. I'm really curious to hear from the group what the word access evokes for us. Access is a very interesting word as someone who offers therapeutic services and also uses them. I've spent the last two years, especially during the pandemic, see the word access play such a huge role from personal relationships, from system standpoints. I'm sure every single person at some point in the last two years has dealt with the word access saying, I don't have access to medical support. And I'm glad it's permeated into my line of work. We've done largely work online over the past two years at Tangent. We've had to unpack what access means through the course of a pandemic at a national level in our work as we pivoted to starting off an initiative online. So the three of us have dealt with the word access that way. And I think personally, as somebody who's used mental health services, the word access meant a space feels comfortable. It feels safe. It feels like a space in which I can be myself. Hopefully, having an understanding of that has also meant tailoring spaces in my line of work to people I meet. So yeah. Why we're coming in here today and convening to have this conversation because I think all of us do access in our work in different ways, but we may understand it differently and we may practice it differently. Ashana, what are your thoughts? What does access bring up for you? As soon as you asked that question, I began thinking about a doorway. When I went deeper into the visual imagery that was cropping up, I thought about not just a doorway, but doors. So access to me is a lot like that because when we say access, we are always also implying access to something. And it feels like a doorway to me. And sometimes that doorway has a door. Sometimes that door is locked. Sometimes that doorway is big enough to let two people in together at the same time. Sometimes a crowd can move through it. Sometimes it's not even functional for one person to pass through. And that imagery, I think, really sums up access for me because it's about how many people are allowed towards a particular resource. Maybe the reason why the image of a door came up in my head because it could also have to do something with gatekeeping as mental health professionals just because we are 
keepers of certain kind of knowledge, we also tend to become this population who are the healers and the fixers. And when that happens, that creates a dichotomy. And that dichotomy in itself can impact access because while I'm a mental health professional, but I'm also a user of mental health services. I have been able to be in therapy for six years and maintain recovery because of the kind of access I had. So this is what comes up yeah. when I talk about access. I think something you brought up that really struck a chord for me was the word allow, right? And the gatekeeping, the idea of gatekeeping that you brought up because I think there's so much to unpack, right? I think... The first thing that came to my mind when you brought up the word access was from a personal stance of what it has meant for me to be able to access mental health. And I was thinking about how coming from a relatively privileged background where finances were not a problem for me, what never allowed me to access mental health up until a certain point of time in my life when I was more independent was the stigma around mental health. The idea that, oh, what exactly is wrong with you to be able to even access mental health because mental health services are only supposed to be accessed by a certain class of people who look a certain way, who talk a certain way, who behave a certain way, who have severe experiences and are therefore being isolated from their normal quote-unquote functionality. And I think even when there were instances where I attempted to talk about how I was experiencing difficult times. It was always then followed by what do you lack that you have to worry so much? I think I would like to follow that up by saying that these were never directly said to me that, oh, you're bringing shame on the family. It was more present in what was not said. And I think it has taken me quite some time to undo that idea of stigma. I think what Aishanya was saying specifically the idea around doorways and whether it's a process or it's a product made me think about two things. One is who is putting up these doors and what lies beyond the door? That's the question I'm left with that, okay, access, we pass through the doorway and then what comes next? And how much of that is supposed to be done by the individual? How much of that is also because the system needs to support the individual in being able to do the rest of the whatever lies ahead. So I guess what's also then adding to this imagery of the doorway is also the idea of what we are carrying with us even when we're at the threshold of that door that I may have, say, I may have financial access to it, right? I may be able to consult with a psychiatrist at a hospital, but am I allowed to walk in to that space feeling like I can just talk to somebody without feeling like there's something wrong with me, quote unquote, wrong with me? There seems to be this dichotomy that care can only come from either mental health services, from say therapeutic services or from psychiatric care and however that exists or through family and friendships and the like, right? And that there is there's something that's separating the two, right? I guess what I'm sort of trying to bring among all of us is that does it always look like that? Yeah, I think access or at least accessibility i think for me it's like something that most things are not by default right because of the capitalist society that we live in and also within mental health care because it's rationalized because it's privatized it is by default inaccessible i think for me accessibility is a thing that you prioritize and very intentionally work towards 
Mm-hmm. And yeah, I graduated this June, so I am not a therapist, so I can't talk about what it means in that line of work. But I think everyone's been drawing on what access means depending on their personal experiences with seeking care. And I think my, similar to Ankita's issue, which was stigma, I think mine was that the way mental health care is offered makes no sense to me. Like, even beyond talk therapy, like, express about, none of it has made sense to me, which is shocking because I think I'm, like, pretty Western in my ways of thinking and what I sort of connect to. But suddenly when it comes to care, it's so meaningless to me. I think that is also part of access, right? Yeah. And I think for my line of work, obviously do, like, so I think for me, access means making the work I'm doing accessible to others. So make that information accessible. But yeah, I wanted to expand on like this idea about the doorway. I think one more question that we can ask is after someone has somehow managed to walk through your maze of a doorway and they've ended up at your door and they've ended up into your room, do you close the door? I think that's a good question to ask. I've been working on health equity. And so what they find is that for example, when a pregnant woman has made her way into the hospital, a marginalized pregnant woman, for black women especially, if there's a midwife inside, she's able to act as a an advocate for the black woman. But during the pandemic, because there was a restriction on how many people can be in the room, suddenly she was exposed to so much racism, so much violence. So I think we should also ask that question. So if only my client walks into the room, is that enough? Or am I also going to leave the door open to family? Those kind of questions. But yeah, I think for me, accessibility is what we're doing right now, which is something that you very intentionally think about, constantly ask questions about. Yeah. Yeah. I strongly resonate with that idea because I think to to take it one step further is also this idea that why is it that we're imagining services or mental health care as something that exists only on the other side of that door, right? And once we enter that door, we also do, we shut that door. And I think to put it very plainly, if you look at the history of mental health care services in India, Largely, the answer to that question has been yes. But I think the idea that you work on yourself to fit into what exists outside that door is what has been perhaps the history of mental health care for a while now. But I think what you're bringing us to sort of question maybe very, very gently is this idea that doesn't necessarily have to look like that. Can we also reimagine who we're working with? And also challenge some of these ideas around boundaries, challenge ideas around confidentiality, challenge ideas around, quote unquote, the ethical frameworks that guide our practice in a way that's perhaps more informed by our culture. It's probably more informed by how we've experienced care before we've walked through that door. What about, say, the therapist sort of really, therapist being the one who comes into that room, who really walks through the door in the opposite direction and sits with all of those multiple stories and everything else simultaneously. But I think this is also where I'm itching to ask all of you about perhaps certain stories of work that may have shaped, maybe even even during training, if there have been experiences that have shaped your understanding of access. I have a couple that comes to mind. So I think I'll go ahead with the most recent one where, well, I was just starting to work with this person and we were like, this is my first session with them. And we were focusing a little bit on like building a rapport and I checked with them that is there something that you would like to ask me before we go ahead. I remember the person paused for a little bit, looked at me and then asked me, can you answer questions that I ask you? I think how I went about that conversation is that 
Of course, I can answer questions, whatever lies within my ethical boundaries. If there's something that falls beyond my ethical boundaries, I will not be able to answer that question. Another experience of work, and this was with a young person, was when they came in and they were like, are you queer affirmative with your work? Because if you're not, I can't work with you. I'm telling you right now. Like, okay. I, yeah. Fantastic. I mean, I would have never done that. I never did that when I was that young because I never had access to it. I didn't even know that queer affirmative stance is something that therapists take on or psychiatrists take on in their work or whatever. So these are two very recent experiences. And going back to something that happened in training, which was a more difficult experience, is this was in an observership role and I was observing in a psychiatry ward in a public hospital. I remember the psychiatrist speaking to the person and their family member that these are your medicines and you have to take them for about 15 days and then you come back, the whole basic thing of it. And then this person asked a question, but doctor, what do these medicines do? And the doctor's response to that was, if you had to know that, then you would be on the other side of this table. So you don't need to know this. And I was beyond appalled. Like I was like, is this allowed? Can they talk to them like that? And I think what felt, what made me feel really helpless in that moment is I'm a trainee. I'm an intern, a psychology intern. I basically don't exist in that system. So three very different experiences, but uh, so three stories, I think. What's coming up for me, Ankita, is that it's three very different experiences, but they're also very different in terms of how power was exchanged in all three of these interactions, right? In the first one, the client was most certainly, I think, putting you in a position of power, right? I think in the second story, this idea of, of a client really claiming their power in the space and saying that if you don't align with what I'm looking for, then this space is not accessible to me and I'm not going to access this service. And the third, where I don't have any relative power in this situation, I can see something happening that is that's perhaps a transgression in terms of the rights of a person. But the situation that I'm in, the context that I've been situated in, makes it very difficult for me to say something. But yeah, I think it also makes us then think about how access is a nuanced conversation then. Accessibility doesn't begin and end with, oh, we're just opening up doors and making sure that everybody can walk in. We're looking at, I think what Anugrah rightfully pointed out, that what is, once they walk in, what happens after that as well. Any other stories that comes up for any of you? When Anugrah brought up the care that currently the mental health care system is providing doesn't make sense to me. And then, Ahana, when you said that, how have we experienced care before we went into these contained sanitized clinics? It really got me thinking that maybe what the system currently is telling us is that our distress is not worthy of being either acknowledged or addressed if it's not pathologized. So you need for it to be looking like a symptom, because then it makes sense for the professional. And that's very interesting is because when people from intersectionally marginalized identities come to the clinic, it's usually, okay, there is outbursts of anger, or there is hopelessness towards the world, or there is an utter sense of helplessness that this person is suffering from, looks like it could be a mood issue, looks like it could be depression. And then all of these lived experiences are contained into these very clean, sanitized labels. And what happens is that the person's lived experience is tossed out. And then 
the person is treated for the symptoms and once those symptoms subside which also are not likely to subside because they are a result of the kind of lives that they are living outside of the clinic yeah and that makes me think that how much we have to perform to be patients in order to be heard you are to be rescued by a mental health professional i agree ashanya this brings up a very personal cause emotion for me as well but i two family members my grandmother and my uncle lived with mental illness for larger parts of their lives for this particular conversation i think i wanted to bring up this interaction that i used to have very very frequently with my uncle where he would have hallucinations quite regularly and there would be a lot of fear or guilt or shame that he would feel along with those hallucinations because of those hallucinations of course i think it was common knowledge to all of us in the family that these are hallucinations so he's seeing things that aren't there or he's feeling things that aren't so he's feeling sensations that aren't really present in the environment quote and quote so to speak and one of the things that i picked up from my family was that we don't challenge there's no need to challenge that the fact that the hallucination doesn't actually exist we don't really have to establish that it is a hallucination in order to support him when he's feeling so distraught and feeling so scared we can just sit with him and believe that what he's seeing is real we can just sit with him and work through whatever this is bringing up for him as a okay this is scary how can i help right so sometimes i remember like i, I would just sit with him and ask him what he's seeing and i would ask him to point at where he's seeing something and of course it would be very uncomfortable for us to be in that space right because the minute i asked that the minute i entered his world it's scary for me as well right it's uncomfortable for me as well i start feeling the emotions that he is also feeling but somewhere i realized that for me to believe him made a lot of difference not just for him but i think for also for our relationship it was a relationship that was founded on respect it was a relationship that was founded on safety and i think this is where i think i struggled a lot as a professional when i was trying to you know transition into being a mental health worker because i think somewhere i picked up this idea from my years of you know studying psychology as an undergrad student and then of course as a professional is that i have to keep my personhood out of the equation right and i felt something going wrong for me right it was a huge violation of something that i've i've done very very differently my whole life and i think it ties up with what anugraha was saying that the way i was being asked to practice care was very alien from how i have practiced care up until that point or i continue to practice in my personal spaces and i kept thinking but what if i just do what i usually do at home what if i believe what this person is telling me and just stay with that and i remember being very scared to even bring up that possibility in supervision or talk about that in my reports i would also be in these observatorships at different government hospitals and the urge to bring up say where i feel like this is not sitting well with me felt very strong but at the same time the other voice that kept saying no no that's not professional of you that's not professional of you kept coming back again again and again and for me my journey into understanding access has looked a lot like that of looked a lot like initially me trying to push away that personal voice that kept telling me that no but you can't just do it differently i think one particular story that comes up for me is this idea that i actually learned a lot about access through dropouts in the in therapy what i saw as incompetence for months to understand that it's not so much incompetence as much as it's perhaps how i'm practicing access in the therapeutic space right am i trying to have 
verbal conversations with somebody who doesn't prefer verbal conversations? Am I also not sitting with myself to say work through my discomfort around using movement in therapeutic conversations, right? Is that what is causing the barrier? It's not incompetence, it's something else. Since then, I've been seeing access as a continuous process that I'm engaging in almost before every session and after every session. Something as simple as me saying that whenever I do bring up, say, a theory or a framework or a, or a quote unquote hypothesis, nowadays I always preface it with, I just want to take you through what that theory might say about what we're discussing here. And I always end that, that hypothesis with, does this make sense to you? And that's opened up so many possibilities for me because I've had clients who've said, oh yeah, this is bang on. Or some clients who've said, no, actually, this is not what I was talking about. I'm like, sure, then we go back to the drawing board and we look at it differently and we see what else we can do. I've realized that sometimes when I'm working with young people, so much of what we're trying to unpack, what we're trying to explore are just systemic concerns. So a lot of times we can't simply just talk about, oh, then essentially we just change what you're doing into what is expected of you. We make sure that you fit in and that solves the problem, right? What does that do to my process as a therapist? And also what does that do to then do the power that I might be holding in the therapeutic space? What are your thoughts on this? Fairly recently, a week or so ago, she's in her late 20s and we are exploring a diagnosis of neurodivergence. And I think something that repeatedly came up is that she wasn't a noisy child. She was a quiet child. A lot of her lived experience through academic spaces has been trying to just meet demands. That demands that one, she didn't have the resources to meet. Two, that also were not necessary to meet. But all of these questions are not going to come up for a young person. One, because nobody is going to look at a young person and ask, okay, what do you need? And second, if you're not saying anything, nobody is going to ask. So just the, the role of how important it is to make noise, but not noise, but also use vocabulary in order to feel heard in certain spaces for you to have access to them. And I think what Vinahana spoke about power in therapeutic spaces, it's been the experience of at least my work with this person has been ensuring that there is more power in the therapeutic space because what now our work just involves reclaiming that power that wasn't there for 20 plus years. And so our work is has been ensuring, acknowledging, holding systems accountable when you enter the doorway as somebody who wants to use mental health services. The fact that it's a process in which at every step, care can look different. With every conversation you want to have, you want to, I want to first talk about stress. And then what does that lead to? If I want to talk about stress, where is that stress coming from? With each question you ask, the care sometimes has to look different. Sometimes at this point, care for me can look like I have a bottle of water next to me. But at the next step, it can look like I need a day off from work. So it, with every question you ask, care can look different. And it also then brings in more people into that room more people into that doorway. I'm also looking at it as a long, like a long passageway. So that at every step of that passageway, there are so many, so many people, so many experiences that need to accompany you in order for you to feel movement there and how important that is. Yeah. I think we're slowly nearing the point where the need to detonate that proverbial doorway is coming very strongly. <laughs> <laughs> Anugra, what are your thoughts on this? Is there a particular story that comes up or an experience that comes up for you? I 
neither but i'm just thinking like something very simple as self esteem like it just came to me but we often we position the problem within the person right you say oh just change the way you look at the world your world views off like don't think of people as horizontal think of but some people are legitimately told that they are less than by multiple systems it's not like one day they woke up and they don't think that they're like the best thing in the world like they've been made to believe it so i'm just like thinking like what are you as therapists meant to do when the person's perception about who they are is very realistic it's not like unfounded it's not because they think of the world a certain way the world has told them this and they've taken the message and it's not there's no perception issue here there's not even get any message wrong they've seen the message they've read it very right they see themselves as less worthy than other people in the world what is the point even of like individualizing problems like this if they don't think for certain like groups yeah yes thank you i think that's that's pretty much the crux of it right i also want to preface this by saying that i don't think any therapeutic framework is beyond redemption i think there is a lot of scope to reimagine to look at these frameworks with care and practice them with care and intention but i think this is also where i struggle a lot with cognitive behavior therapy as a framework because i think the whole idea of core beliefs and conditional assumptions and oh i'm challenging a particular idea you have about the world because it's a quote unquote distorted idea about the world and yourself or whatever these distortions can sometimes be founded in evidence there is experience that has consolidated this for me like rightfully like you said and the world has constantly told me and not minced words at all by telling me that i'm not enough that i'm not good enough i'm not i'm not smart enough i'm not able enough how do i then challenge that idea because then it's a massive undertaking for me to say quote unquote build my self esteem become a confident assertive person in the room it's a massive undertaking and i'm having to do all of the work myself to essentially establish myself in a particular space to feel safe and feel like i belong in that space and i'm doing that work alone and the way i look at it is that the world is setting myself up to experience more failures you're right in pointing it out at least for me there's a very strong resonance with this idea that systemic work is perhaps where we are possibly trying to gravitate towards when we're saying that individual law say when we're saying that these doorways don't necessarily necessitate or don't necessarily validate the experiences of the people who walk into those doorways and sometimes when we are working in therapeutic spaces and we're working with these quote unquote core beliefs these core beliefs are founded in experiences that have been very very painful right and we have to bring in voices and we have to question systems and sometimes the only thing that the therapist can do is also bring in the idea that the system is to be held accountable here and also acknowledging that we are you know sort of going up against systems that have existed for a very long time and this is challenging work and some of us don't know how to navigate this so we will probably be discovering and rediscovering and learning and unlearning a lot of things in this therapeutic journey and i think this is where we break character as professionals and sometimes it can just look like affirming the person's identity and saying that i don't think you are worthless i don't think you are you are unworthy of love and acceptance and sometimes it can look like that just you know deviating from this idea of the neutral therapist and being affirmative but yeah that's how i see it what is this bringing up for all of you at this point in time especially when we're thinking about ha huh, what has that got to do with access how is that bringing up things for all of you there are individuals or communities who have been let's say left on this side of the doorway and door shut on them then 
what are different ways of accessing that portal or that passageway or that other side of the room. So we need to hear it from people who have been left out, who have been marginalized, who have been struggling with access to resources that are valuable to them. So then also access to what, right? Again, this thing that access a process or is access a product? Going back to the conversation yeah, we were yeah. having in the beginning, right? That what are resources that are meaningful to a particular community, to a particular individual? And then do they have access to that? For example, let's say for me, resources that are valuable or significant for my well-being can be very different to what resources that are valuable and significant to Anugraha are. For her, talk therapy doesn't work. For me, it works wonderfully well. So in that sense, I have not faced, let's say, barriers in accessing care, but Anugraha has because her meaning of well-being is different. Her meaning of being given care is different, which also then makes brings up the question, Hana, that you've been asking that, you know, then how do we conceptualize care? And hopefully we are able to answer these questions in the upcoming episodes to say that, what does care look like? Do we need to just change the way care is so that the whole idea of care is not just idea, the praxis in which we do care or do caring is accessible. Yeah. So that it's meaningful for different people with different lived experiences. Yeah, agree. We have to have these conversations with multiple people because there are multiple understandings of access. There can never just be a single story around this. It is multifaceted. It is diverse. There are infinite, perhaps, understandings of what this can look like. And I think that's why I'm so very looking forward to having these conversations with multiple people in these coming episodes to see what they bring up for us and what we can perhaps collectively learn and unlearn. And I think on that note, let's wrap up this conversation for today. Of course, we're setting up the stage for a really exciting line of speakers to come in and share their thoughts and their work as well. Looking forward to what lies ahead. 